0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey. Gentlemen.
0: Hey, guys. Hey, welcome home,
1: Max. Hey, thanks a lot. A Where out. you been,
0: Max? I went to Boston this weekend to uh, wish my grandmother a 100th birthday, a happy 100th birthday. She turned 100 on Saturday. And like 80 people from my family came all over the country, and we surprised her. And she really likes gambling. So we had a casino night. She played
1: roulette. It was awesome. How do you surprise someone who's 100? She's seen it all. She's...
0: Yeah, she was pretty surprised. She was pretty surprised. She was kind of shocked. And there was a lot of like, we can't surprise her too much or she might have a heart attack. <laughs> so there was like a pre-surprise like, there's many more people here than you know. We just we whispered that in her ear right before she walked into the we room. We should
1: get her on the podcast, it sounds like. it's caller, call her. <laughs> Evan, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Amy Wallace, who is an L.A.-based writer for GQ, for Wired, Uh, She's written for a bunch of places. She's a wonderful writer, and she, in my opinion, is the kind of writer where you read her work and then you think she would be really fun to talk to, and actually she was. She's really interesting. She has a great perspective on this kind of work. That's great, because I feel like my experience so often is just I'm totally let down by the guests. (laughs) Yeah, we won't say which ones.
0: Our sponsor this week is Warby Parker. It's a new concept in eyewear, and it's one that I am currently wearing on my face uh, quite happily. Thank you, Warby Parker. You guys, we have Absolutely. a second sponsor. It's a Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here is Evan and Amy Wallace.
1: Welcome to the Longform Podcast.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for coming in here. You're I was going to catch you in LA, but then it turned out you're going to be in New York anyway. So yes,
2: I'm here, so we can do the sound booth thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. It wouldn't have been the same, uh, <laughs> the same quality, the same intimacy Indeed. if we'd done it uh, out in LA. Um, you've been based in LA for a long time. Do you do you find yourself pulled back to New York a lot, or are you sort of like a happy sort of satellite out there?
2: Um, both. I'm a happy satellite, and I come back a lot. Uh-huh. But, but I love New York. I used to live here, and Man, the past couple of days have just been reminding me why I loved it. You know, <laughs> it, I've had a nice time here, remembering what it was like to live here. I lived here right, not right out of college, but a year out of college. I my first job out of college was working as a, an assistant to a columnist at the New York Times in the Washington bureau, uh, James Reston.
1: How did you get that job?
2: I was an intern for Newsweek for two summers. Um, once in Washington D.C. and once in San Francisco. And while I was an intern in Washington D.C., I met a guy playing softball. He was on the New York Times team, and I was on the Newsweek team. And he said, "I have this amazing job. I work for this columnist at the New York Times. I'm like right out of college, and I work at the New York Times for a column for like the big dog columnist." And I said, "How do you get that job?" And he said, "Well, he has this tradition where he he's modeled it on the Supreme Court." clerkships and he has one-year jobs for people right out of college and instead of having an amazing executive assistant who runs his life with (laughs) with efficiency he hires a college student basically somebody who's just graduated from college and you work for him for a year and help him with his columns and write for the times when you can and and i was like well damn where do i sign up for that and i ended up applying for it and i ended up getting it so the first job was there, and then I went up to New York after that and worked on the national desk, answering the phone, getting coffee, being a copy clerk basically
1: so once you were in then you kind of your well, then I then I came,
2: came up here to new York and and that's when I lived here uh-huh. yeah I don't know if you want me to give the the sort of chronology of how I became a magazine writer, but actually I want
1: yeah. I, I kind of want to save that uh, just for just a second because I wanted to s- step back. The thing I actually wanted to start off asking you about, um, which maybe will get us into some of the stuff, was just that looking over all of the things you've written about, mm-hmm. there is an incredibly wide range. And I think it's rare for someone to go really deep into, say, business reporting and also go really deep into, say, Hollywood profiles mm-hmm. and then into science writing. And I guess I wanted to find out if that felt like a natural evolution over your career. I follow what I'm interested in. I'm a generalist. Or if you feel like you have been sort of very specific in the way you've wanted to develop your career, the way you've wanted to, you know, go after certain subjects or educate yourself in certain areas or something like that.
2: It's definitely the former. I'm I'm definitely a ger- gener- generalist journalist. Um, and at times, self-critically, like, should I be more of a... Should I focus more at one or the other? Um, I, you know, I was a metro reporter for a long time. I covered riots and fires and earthquakes. Um, I covered prisons when I was in Atlanta. We'll get to all of that. But but I covered death row for a while and executions. I, uh, I for a long time, I took jobs or gravitated towards assignments that I thought would teach me something when I was really younger and learning. and I need to learn how to seek out court documents. I need to learn how to cover a trial. Mm-hmm. This will be good. I'll do it. I don't care. I'll learn how to do that That skill. Later, I, I have just gravitated to what interests me. The, the only place that that's a little, not a completely... Simple explanation is that celebrity profiles, in part, I do because I learned how to do them when I was a newspaper reporter at the LA Times. I thought if I was going to write about the movie industry, I needed to understand celebrity. Mm -hmm. And and I was not averse to doing them. Sometimes people think, uh, they're just silly celebrity profiles. I thought, well, if I'm going to understand how Hollywood works, I need to get up close to some of this A-list stuff. Um... So, I develop the skill. And as a, f- a person who f- pieces together a career financially, it's it's a if you can do that, it's one of the tools in your toolbox, mm-hmm. and it allows you to make a living. They're fairly quick hit stories, not always. Um, I try to do a lot of secondary interviews, um but, but some you know i just had a piece about justin timberlake in gq and it, it's mostly just an interview with justin timberlake right. you know it's me and him and and so that can be time consuming to prepare for and time consuming to make happen but it's almost like shooting a picture like once you've got it in the once you got the interview in the can you got to write it but you're not out doing a huge amount more research um and as a i mean advice to freelancers if you can piece together a career where you do both ambitious stuff that feeds your soul and is nutritious, and you feel like you're you're doing something important and raising an important issue or uncovering an important story, but also if you only did that um it would be hard to eat mm-hmm. because the stories can take a year, they can take three years um so and especially as a freelancer yes, that exactly. that money's not coming
1: till the end or actually well beyond the end of. Exactly. That story.
2: So um, so I'm not saying I'm not interested in celebrity profiles. I am. And I, I'm constantly interested in the machinery around famous people and how they deal with fame. I'm I, I not a snob at all about high, high, high culture, low culture. I think it's it's part of what makes our country a, something that people are definitely interested in. I'm interested in it, too. But... Um, but that, I would admit that partly I do that for economic reasons as well, huh. not just my interest. But I've, you're right. I mean, I've written about the anti vaccine movement. I've written about, I love true crime. I will write, you know, I've written a lot of um, murder stories. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the thing that unites all of them, and generally I turn any story that I'm working on, whether it's a celebrity profiler or a biologist who murdered a bunch of people or, or Justin Timberlake, is there's a, it's almost tried to say, but there's a humanity to each of these people. And figuring out what's making them tick in the moment, or in general, is really interesting to me. So in a way, that's my sweet spot. And that's what I tend to gravitate towards.
1: The irony might be that it's Sometimes more difficult to find the humanity in the celebrity than it is in the like person on death row.
2: <laughs> well, and often that's because you are only getting a, <laughs> right. a very little bit of time right. with you've
1: them. You got ten minutes to find the humanity in this uh, world-renowned person. But something you just said about uh, about you decided to develop that skill when it uh-huh. comes to doing those kind of profiles. How did you? How do you do that? How do you? How do you sort of say like I'm going to take try to bring my approach to this thing that I've never done before, profiling someone who maybe has been profiled a hundred times and maybe I don't get much time with.
2: Right. I mean, I push for as much time as possible. Mm -hmm. I actually, I think the less time you have, the less you have to say always. I mean, but, but I mean, the thing that I say, I've talked to a lot of, you know, journalism classes and the thing that I always say, sometimes young people think. Um, who want to be celebrity journalists because it seems like it would be so much fun and so glamorous, and they think that the if you put them, if you sat them down with a celebrity right now, what they would think the right approach would be is to say, I'm such a fan of yours, that that would be the end, that that would be the the convincing way of warming somebody up. And what I often say is the most flattering thing you can do to somebody, whether they are a music star or a scientist or whoever you're interviewing, a lawyer, is to have done your homework, which sounds kind of tedious. But when I sit down with somebody, I have generally read everything they've written. If they're writers, I've listened to every piece of music. If they're musicians, I've read everything that's ever been written about them. Um, And what happens there is you don't announce that Mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, interview. But very early on something comes up where they make a reference to something and you say, oh, wasn't that when you were, you know, in Thailand that time with the, you know, the, the Buddha? Or you, And they look at you and they go, oh, okay, this is interesting. And sometimes that happens more than other times. But if you've really immersed yourself in the person, um, and I guess what I'm saying is I, I didn't know to do that in the beginning, <laughs> I uh-huh. just tr- I just thought it would be a good idea to prepare, you know, like we all do for interviews. But the more I do it, the more I'm convinced that that is really the way into somebody, even somebody who is very tired of talking about themselves, is very guarded um, because they're sick of reading about themselves. Movie stars sometimes are just tired of it, and they and they frankly they want to do their acting. They don't want to talk about doing their acting. So, and I have some sympathy for that. I get it. Um, but, you know, it's, so that that process, I think, is really, and the other thing that I do, I've, that I've talked about it before is, when I can, I try to do secondary interviews before I reach the primary person. Mm, so, so reporting and, around them. Yeah, so, and for, like, when I profiled Gary Shanley, the comedian, partly because the interview kept getting delayed, I had talked to, like, 30 people about him. And I could say, not just as a name dropping technique, but I could say, well, you know, Robert Downey said that you blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, I could, I could sort of provoke an answer by saying something that was said by somebody that he actually knows and somebody he's fond of or respects or, or he's actually interested in hearing what Robert Downey had to say about him. He wants to know. So that that I've stumbled on some sort of by accident sometimes, um, but you know, basically by my deadline approaching, my realizing I have to do all these interviews and I would, I have to interview the subject. But okay, I'll do these other interviews first. But that often helps in the interview itself.
1: That Gary Shandling profile was is one of the most interesting to me. I feel like I that was one. I think I had I had read your stuff before, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm a I admit I'm not. Much, I don't like celebrity profiles in mm-hmm. general. I don't like reading them. But then I'll I'll read one, and then I'll like peg someone as okay. Now I will read this person's all of their celebrity profiles. And actually, we've had on Chris Heath is another one mm-hmm. that's that way, and Nancy he's Jo great. Sales is another one that that, that yeah. is that way. That I feel like okay, this is going to be, and it's something in the more to me a more almost like anthropological approach yes. uh, to who these people are. And I feel like the Shandling one was kind of like that. Like he's such a strange uh man but also like he's this sort of like guru yeah that all of these other people kind of come to is like the he's the guru of comedy which i never would have thought just kind of like seeing some of his comedy
2: yeah no he uh, i found that out before i d- did the profile and so i realized that that was going to be a theme um he didn't tell me i just was hearing it that people um there are a couple of guys in hollywood that people use to they they screen their movies Before them, and they they could take their feedback and they need that feedback. And I thought it was interesting that he was that guy for funny people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean that was a really I mean he and I have talked about that profile a lot since. Really? Because that is really an example of a profile that we made together. I mean, maybe every profile gets made, you know, everybody has to participate and we're all doing our jobs. But he I went to his house for the first, what I thought was going to be the only interview. And he, the the peg for the story was that he was appearing in Iron Man 2, I believe. And he had been missing from action for five years. And I I said, okay, so just one basic question is, how why did you decide that Iron Man 2 is the project that was going to bring you back in front of the world's you no know, eyes
1: right of all of all the things yeah, of all
2: the things and this is actually described in the story because he started to talk and he talked for an hour <laughs> and, and he never answered the question and he talked about and we I list all the things that he talked about the love of a good woman you know God the, you know it, it went on and on and on from the mundane to the profound. But I, because I'm used to managing... Part of the, the stress of a celebrity profile is you know you only have a certain amount of time and you have to manage that time. You've got to get through all your stuff. And I, if you'd seen the body language between us, I was leaning farther and farther forward <laughs> as he kept talking because I was, I was thinking, if he takes an hour to answer this question, I'm never going to get <laughs> through these 75,000 other questions that I've brought that I meticulously wrote down... And so I'm leaning, leaning, leaning towards him and I'm starting to touch his like arm and saying, I'm saying, Gary, Gary, you have to answer the question, why Iron Man 2? And he was just loving it and he was just <laughs> riffing and riffing. And finally he said, you know, you can come back. And at that point I realized I was experiencing what it is to be with Gary Shanling. Uh-huh. And if I could come back, I was going to relax. And I literally just leaned back in my chair and let it roll over me—the <laughs> Gary Shandling of it all—and he—he made good on that. Like we—we we spent a lot of time together, and I then had the very satisfying experience of feeling like I actually did, to the extent one person can really understand another. I—I I really did feel like I understood him, mm-hmm. um, and could and could help you understand him, which is very satisfying. Um, that's part of why I like writing profiles when you can really achieve that.
1: Hey, this is Evan. I'm just pausing the interview for one moment. Uh, Regular listeners will know that we do this sometimes to talk about our sponsors, and I don't usually do it. I usually make Max do it because he's better at doing it. But in this particular case, uh, I actually really like the sponsor, which is Warby Parker. Uh, I wear. Warby Parker glasses. I also have a pair of sunglasses. And the reason is because when you're a glasses wearer and you want to go try to buy a pair of glasses that you think looks cool, you go into one of these designer eyewear stores and then it costs like $600 when you get to the register and it seems sort of ridiculous. And Warby Parker is kind of the solution to that in that you can buy a pair of cool glasses and they cost $95. Uh, They will send you a bunch that you can try on and then you find the ones you like and you send it back. And on top of that, when you buy one they ship a pair to someone in the world who needs a pair of glasses, which uh, is pretty cool. So uh, if you want to check them out, there's a code, long form, that if you put it in check checkout, they will give you expedited shipping. And we really appreciate their sponsorship this week. And now back to myself talking to Amy Wallace. There there has to be something in in that. I mean, it has to be on the part of the subject, too, because you're dealing with a type of journalism that's often so transactional, you know, Mm -hmm. movie's coming out I got five questions about the movie what was it like to work with Robert Downey Jr. and it's just kind of like they're just going to drone out their answers as opposed to he has to make a decision all right I'm gonna I'm comfortable being myself or I'm I'm going to give this person more than Mm -hmm. than I normally would Mm -hmm. it seems like you have to kind of like make that happen or else you're stuck with the same profile that everyone else has written
2: well and and that was a really good example of What made him do that was that he saw that I had really done, I mean, it wasn't like I waved a flag saying I did all my homework, but there was an an interaction early on where I saw a photograph in his kitchen and I said, is that, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but Thich Nhat Hanh, who's this monk um, and meditation teacher that I had read that he worked with. and." he it wasn't and the picture wasn't but he i, I don't i think I, that's my memory but he kind of looked at me like huh you've gone there right and it set things off on a a good footing you know he thought he felt taken seriously so that that's sort of the takeaway is you don't have to flatter these people take them seriously everybody yeah. wants to be taken seriously nobel prize winners want to be taken seriously i mean their own spouses are sick of hearing them talk. But when, you, when we come in, you know, we're like, that's so interesting and tell me more about that and why did you make that choice and why didn't you make that choice? And it's it, fundamentally, not all interviews are flattering, but, but the fact that we're coming in and saying, I really want to understand you um, in a profile situation, I think people, depending on the situation, people are flattered by that without you having to praise them.
1: Yeah. So well, to go happened. to go from that to, I feel like we're going from like uh, the lightness of Gary <laughs> Shandling down down deeper. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the most recent, I don't know if the t- Justin Timberlake one's the most recent or the... They kind of came the, out the same week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: the, the boy who killed his neo-Nazi father. Yeah, the boy
1: yeah. Who, who killed his father. So um, that story is also... I know, because we actually tried to sign that story at The Atavist. Uh, really? Yeah, but it's one of those where we sort of kind of, we had that inkling, you know, some uh, someone else is on this, and uh, maybe we're not going to be the ones to get it, so we ended up letting it drop. But um, that's one interesting aspect of it, is that it's, that's been a while. So you've been on that story. I
2: worked on that story for more than a year. Yeah. 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 I mean, off and on. I was doing other things as well, but, and he... You know, but his trial started last October and we're now in November. Um, so it's been more than a year. Um, yeah, that was a really heartbreaking story.
1: How did you sort of, uh, how did you kind of work your way into that that story?
2: You know, that's a situation where, you know, I couldn't talk to the boy. Yeah, um, He's in juvenile detention. And just to sum it up for people who haven't heard it, it's it's a 10-year-old boy. Whose father was a leader of a neo-Nazi group, the National so- Socialist Movement (NSM), in Southern California. And one night, he got up in the middle of the night and he got Dad's gun, which was always lying around loaded, and shot his dad in the head. Um, he was on trial for for murder as a juvenile, um, and I basically entered at the trial stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that so I could see him, I could see him reacting in the courtroom and, and was there for much of the testimony and then got some of the expert testimony, like on, you know, I got it transcribed and had that as well. Um, and then I got to know uh, his grandmother a little bit and did a lot of research about the National Socialist Movement and sort of and, and why the Riverside and that whole San Bernardino County area is such a hotbed to the extent that it is for that kind of um, belief system. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's about poverty and Mm -hmm. no options. And um, one of the important elements of reporting that story also was there was a woman, Julie Plattner, who had been following um, the father, Jeff Hall, around hoping to make a documentary of him. And she had a huge amount of footage of him. Uh-huh. And in fact, th- what drew our attention, Brendan, my editor at GQ, and I, to the story was that the New York Times wrote this front page story about it yeah. because there had been a New York Times reporter following Jeff around to do a story about neo Nazism or something. And he had been with them the day before. The killing happened, but julie was the one that had taken that reporter into that story—and there are pictures that ran in the New York Times that Julie had taken. Oh, I see. So I tracked Julie down and watched all her footage. So I saw Jeff interacting with his son, even though Jeff was dead, um, and I saw sort of that dynamic, um, which is a rare—you know—when you're when you pick it up at the trial stage, you know, there are missing people already. <laughs> you know, there's there's somebody who's already. Gone. Yeah.
1: Um, and especially the interaction between, yeah. in this case, the killer and the victim.
2: Yeah. Um, and we don't, there's not that much of that in the story. There's more, I mean, I, what it did show me was that I think Jeff Hall loved his kids. You know, he was, he was, uh, had, you know, questionable judgment about certain things, but he was very involved in his kids. And it was just a really complicated, Situation because Joseph, his son, was really damaged for a lot of reasons, and um, that was the quandary of the trial, which was what, as we say in the story, what to do with Joseph. You know, he's because he's a juvenile; he will be out back out among us in ten years, and when he's twenty-three, and how do you get somebody help who's going to be back out among us? You mm-hmm. know, um, who who was dealt the worst of all possible hands. In terms of drug abuse in utero, perhaps in terms of of probably some some sort of whether it's attention deficit or I don't know what sort of damage that happened to him uh, that he that he was struggling with in terms of being able to do well in school. And so there's a lot of anger and and then, you know, there are guns around. So there was that. Um, And (laughs) that was was a factor. Yeah, Nazi meetings happening in the house and a lot of rhetoric. And he'd been taken down to the border to learn how to shoot. And so he really just was dealt the worst of all hands.
1: And do do you, so, I mean, you have a son and you, you you know, there's ways that you could sort of like relate to the story, but do you feel like that you, generally keep yourself at some remove from the story. Um you're not a huge like first person writer actually, in a lot of ways. I do but...
2: go first person in that piece at one point. Yeah. Um you know, it's funny on the sort of to step back from that whole issue. You know, there are certain ways of going first person, often in celebrity profiles that I've often hated, which are like, then I ordered the Caesar salad and she ordered the blah, blah, blah. I remember the first time that I met her, Meg Ryan or whoever. A lot of that
1: is just a lack of things to talk about. You're just like stretching out some lunch. It
2: often is the person did not get very much. And so they're describing the, the argument in favor of that is, hey, they got to be with this person. So they're telling us what it's like, but often it feels like padding. That said, I have put myself sometimes it's the way the person is interacting with you that is interesting yeah so when Justin Timberlake is is telling me that uh I don't know if we can cuss on this yes um, we can when he's telling me that it's really interesting that I'm interviewing him about the men of the year issue when he feels like literally people a bunch of people just took a shit on my face he has to say that to me and there has to be a con. I mean, in other words, it's not a sort of disembodied quote you can put somewhere. He's saying it to me and it right. feels, wow, I've never heard Justin Timberlake say anything like that. Um,
1: it was a great Twitter. Uh, that was a fantastic <laughs> Twitter quote to have. <laughs> I think it's easy to spread. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, I mean, he was... I got him on a bad day. I mean, or a a good day. I mean, I think he was, he chose to articulate himself that way. He was mad and he was, he wanted to tell somebody about it, but, um, it depends. Yeah. (laughs) It depends. But I, but I, I am briefly in the Joseph thing because I think that I kind of had to say, like, you find yourself feeling like this when you are in the courtroom looking at this boy, Yeah, you know, and just describing it although i'm a fan of that kind of det- more removed sort of just purely observational it felt, in this case particularly since jim nelson the editor in chief of gq had urged me to make this more of a almost essay and yeah. like a discussion of the issues raised as opposed to just a rat-a-tat-tat crime story which i think was the right call um and then when once it had that tone which is kind of kicked off at the end of the first section, which says, you know, it seemed simple, but it was anything but. It, the There was a voice of almost essay quality. Yeah. So then I could live in that story a little bit more. I'm not in it very much, but.
1: And then, I mean, I guess part of what I was getting to was, does the story live with you? I mean, do you, the story just does came it out, so it's been me, done for yeah. a while. So, But do you wake up thinking about this kid or, you know, is it easy to sort of dip into that? And and come out of it and move on to something lighter, or how much does it sort of like accumulate on you?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I definitely made me. I mean, it it stuck. It sticks with me. It's a it's a story that that doesn't you know when you think about the elements in it, it, it's it's hard to feel anything but sadness about it. Um. I mean I've had different experiences. I this goes back to the beginning of my career but when I was uh, when I covered prisons for the Atlanta Journal Constitution.
1: Now this was so let's get from uh, okay, the, so t- from, the from, times to from there. the New
2: York Times the Washington the person who had been the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times when I worked briefly there when I worked for there for a year was a man named Bill Kovach and he ended up leaving the New York Times and going to become the editor in chief of the Atlanta Journal Constitution and with him he took many young people who wanted to be full-time reporters and were tired of getting coffee in the hopes of someday becoming reporters. Mm-hmm. So I was one of I think five or six of us who went from the New York Times clerkship program in down um, to Atlanta. And my first beat was covering prisons. Um, and at that time and I think to this day, Georgia uh, kills people in the electric chair on a regular basis. They're worse
1: with uh, They're up there with Florida.
2: So I The way covering executions worked was if the murder, generally it was a murder that somebody was being executed for, had happened in your county, the newspaper in that county had a, could get a seat to witness mm-hmm. an execution. And I was very um, sort of strident and young um, and female and trying to prove that I was tough and not a sissy. And so when a time came up for me to witness, I said, I'm absolutely witnessing if, if the state of Georgia is going to kill people, I think the Atlanta Journal-Constitution should show people what that looks like. So my, my boss, um, the managing editor, assistant managing editor for Metro at that point said, who was a really tough guy, Sonny Rawls, um, he said, I wouldn't do, kid, I wouldn't, do, why, what are you doing that for? And I was like, because we cover this and we should show it. And he said, I don't want that memory in my mind. I don't want, I don't, you don't need to do this. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to do this. I'm doing it. So I watched Timothy McCorkadale be, be electrocuted. And I wrote a huge story about how it works and how the chair first there's a surge of 2000 volts and then there's another one. Ten seconds later, I I, we we went to town. We Mm -hmm. you're going to we're going to do this as a society. That's fine. Let's just look at what it looks like and what you actually do. Um, And a couple of weeks after I watched it, I had a really weird um, dream that I've never had. I don't think I've ever had a dream like this, where everything in the dream was red, <laughs> and it the the visuals were just people I loved looking at me in the face and turning away from me, like shaking their heads, like mm. like, and it was a very upsetting dream. And I woke up thinking, "What the hell was that?" And at least my analysis of that dream, <laughs> you can you can be the judge, doctor, but was ultimately that i think that's what i was imagining it felt like to be on death row that people turn away from you they say you are the monster you know you you aren't just a person who made a mistake you are the you are the other and we 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 excommunicate you from society and we kill you too <laughs> and that's how my brain sort of processed that experience um while in the moment i was very you know, taking notes and yeah, making sure, the, and the leather strap was on the ankle, and then the the blindfold went on the da da da, and I was all in the you know in the details of reporting my job, but stories do have an impact. On uh, you. That
1: one's obviously stuck with you. Yeah, That's oh yeah, it's been a while. I mean, what what year was that? That was
2: nineteen eighty eight, maybe.
1: Did you um did you ever witness another execution?
2: No, that's the only one I witnessed. One was plenty.
1: And so how did you, you were covering prisons in Atlanta, and then how did you sort of move on from there? Did you go straight to LA Times from there?
2: I went straight to the LA Times. Well, Bill Kovach, who we'd all followed um, to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quit. This is the short version. <laughs> um, and Sounds we, like a more interesting story. Yeah, there's a long story there. And actually, it's a public record. It's, I mean, he was feeling pressure from the Cox sisters who owned the paper. Mm-hmm. And the paper ended up winning a Pulitzer for a series on redlining But and was doing great work. But in any case, suddenly the person we'd followed was no longer running the paper. Mm-hmm. and so Unfortunately,
1: I, they succeeded in turning the paper into what it is today.
2: Well, and that was... Close we thought clearly about to happen. And so a bunch of us um, headed for the exits. And mm-hmm. I, as it happened, I'd been covering a congressional race at that point, and I, the election had just happened, and I was already going to California for a vacation. And I quickly sent my resume to the Los Angeles Times, the San Jose Mercury, there might have been another one. And I interviewed while I was on vacation, and I ended up, it took a while, but I ended up getting a job at the LA Times. And I worked there for a long time. I was a, I was a reporter there for 11, 11 years. Yeah. And
1: how did you make the transition from being a newspaper reporter? I mean, you mentioned like the frustrations of having to sort of learn things on deadline. But how did you, what prompted the decision to sort of make the jump? Did you start doing, so you did some magazine pieces while you were still on I did. Well, there. at that
2: point, the Los Angeles Times had a magazine, right? which it no yeah. longer does. And there was a great editor there, Kit Rackless, who I worked with on several magazine pieces. And then Kit ended up leaving and going to be the editor-in-chief of Los Angeles Magazine, and I followed him and became a full-time magazine writer then. Mm -hmm. And really, sort of, my education was really full-time at that point. Um, The thing that I felt was... You know, there's so much about newspaper reporting, and I admire it still, and I still subscribe, and I'm, you know, an advocate, and and I'm sad about what's happening to a lot of newspapers, but for for me, I felt like you could say more in a magazine, and I don't just mean space-wise, I mean some of these things we've been discussing, you know. Uh, point of view change, or including yourself when appropriate, mm-hmm. or or stepping back. There was an amazing story that that um, that another writer at L, at LA Magazine who had come with me from the LA Times, and he and I used to talk about it all the time. Which was a Ron Suskind piece in the New York Times Magazine, where he profiled the press secretary for President Bush. And he caught her at sort of a time when she was making a huge transition. And during the reporting, she steps down and she decides to go back uh, to her life in Texas, I think. And he's in the lead. The reporter is in the lead. And he's describing how awkward it is to be in the house. And... And how there's these awful, uh, awkward silences as he waits for her to come downstairs and he's talking to the husband, "I'm not doing it justice at all." But we would talk about this story, like: We'll
1: put it in the reference to it in the show it notes.: It's
2: fascinating how he, he's telling us so much more by describing that than if he just quoted what they said and told us what their house looked like. He's explaining the awkwardness of this situation, this moment she finds herself in and that her family finds themselves in. And we, I mean, if we talked about that story for 10 minutes, we've talked about it for <laughs> 500 minutes. Like we just were, it, it was what we were trying to learn to do. And I'm t- the person I was talking with for 500 minutes was Jesse Katz, who's a great, great magazine writer. And But we were new at it and we were fascinated by that idea that you could actually say more of the truth when you acknowledged, and this was the key thing, when you acknowledge what you didn't know. Mm. In the story, when you acknowledge when you were confused or when you acknowledged that, that you couldn't get to the bottom of it or that you were, t- there's a, a great Dave Gardetta story uh, um, called Hooking Up in which he uh, tries to explore the youth culture of what is hooking up. And at one point in the story, he says, <laughs> he says, I don't know what hooking up means. <laughs> I mean, he says it much more eloquently than that, but he says to some people, hooking up is this. Some people hooking up is that. And it's a, both a hilarious paragraph, but it actually says more about what hooking up, the role <laughs> that that phrase plays in the culture than if you actually nail down a definition. <laughs> and that really interested me. And I felt like magazine writing let that happen
1: uh two sort of business related things you worked for portfolio magazine which i wanted to touch on just a little bit because mm-hmm. that seems like uh just an interesting experience and you also wrote a column for the new york times which yes. was about innovation but the portfolio thing were you a staff writer
2: at portfolio I was. yeah
1: and did it feel like you were like riding a gold-plated train to to paradise and then it, and then it like went off a cliff or like what I'm interested in sort of the experience of being inside of something like that, that sort of like launches out of nowhere.
2: Well, it definitely had a lot of resources. Yeah. I mean, mean, it was, um, it was definitely a well-funded entity, um, and a beautiful magazine. It looked fantastic. Um, I mean, I wasn't actually inside the belly of the beast because I was always in Los Angeles and was always based out, out on the left coast. But, um, I wouldn't say that it felt fantastic and then suddenly we went off a cliff. Um, I think everybody knew that things were not working as they should have. Mm -hmm. Um, The basic thing about Portfolio was it was a very high-end business magazine that was launched at a time when everybody was cutting back on their high-end advertising. That's the short version of why it went down. Um, But it was also a, a business magazine that was trying to figure out what it was. And that was difficult for a lot of people who were working there.
1: Mm -hmm. And in terms of, I mean, you've been now, I guess, a freelancer really for since then. And you were sort of seems like prior to then. And I think a lot of people would look now, especially younger people and say, uh, if you're going to try to raise a family, that being a freelancer is either incredibly difficult or untenable. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if your sort of approach to it is that you value your freedom a certain amount and your and and the other aspects of life or if you're sort of like no actually i i've figured out how to piece together the income i need to like live the life i want to live you know what i mean
2: i wish it were the latter yes i've figured it out everyone it's all i'll just give you my secrets um well let me say this i've been i mean i have several jobs right now i work Half time at Los Angeles Magazine, I'm editor-at-large, which, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, is the best title I will ever have. <laughs> um, and I love all the people there. And the great thing about that is that it gives me, in addition to working with great editors, Mary Melton, the editor-in-chief, is fantastic. Um, it gives me a community. And I, I'm not a person who's very happy when I'm just sitting in my house. Mm. Um, um, sometimes I like sitting in my house. But, but to not have any sort of place to get up and go to is not good for my psyche. I've found. So I have that and I am a correspondent for GQ. So I owe them a certain number of words a year. And then I freelance from there. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about before we started recording, I've also helped an executive at Pixar, Ed Catmull, write a book, which is going to come out in April. So again, I guess that fits into the generalist sort of trying to have lots of tools in my toolbox. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important if you want to feed yourself and your family. Um, I've been very fortunate in terms of having opportunities but you know for example the New York Times um, prototype column it was called um, about innovation how that occurred was when I was at Portfolio um, an editor at the Sunday New York Times business section had approached me about possibly working there and That didn't work out, but we had started this dialogue, and so when Portfolio closed, and I had a story that was supposed to appear in, I think it was the June, maybe July issue, that was now not gonna be printed. Mm -hmm. I had this finished, very long story. I went straight to him and said, "Will you run this, I have a baby that has no home. And it needs to run quickly. Like I needed it. it, it was gonna become, if I went to another national magazine, First of all, they'd be like, whatever, we didn't assign this. But also, it needed t- to be birthed. Mm-hmm. And he ran it. He he opened up much of um, the section for it on a Sunday. And, and I ended up doing a couple of more freelance pieces for him. And then he asked me if I wanted to do this column. So, I mean, again, one of the things that I say to young people about um, freelancing is don't underestimate how valuable it is to... Make your deadline. Be professional and accurate. Do what you say you're going to do and play well with others. Some of those things are very boring sounding like, well, that's not brilliant. I want to be brilliant. (laughs) Well, I want to be brilliant too. But the way you make a career (laughs) is you get the job done and you do it when you said you were going to do it and you you're intellectually honest and you do anything to make the story good and when you do that people want to work with you again even if it's been hard you mm-hmm. know um now what does that mean for your life <laughs> i mean the, the number of jobs i just described to you i don't recommend it yeah it, it 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 was too many at one point and now the book is finished and it's going to be out in april um Creativity Inc is what it's called and it's going to be great and it's uh, it was Ed's you know it's his, sort of his life's work and how how Pixar manages its creative culture. Um it's cool. But but when I was doing that and several other things at once, I took I took a 6-month book leave but you know, frankly couldn't afford to take much more than that. And you know, that the the, the upside is that I have freedom so I can I can work when I decide to, mm-hmm. as opposed to you have to be at your desk from nine to five. Um, but it does mean that I ended up working, you know a lot of time, you know, weekends and nights and things like that. Um, and that's still true to a certain degree, even with the book being done. you know that is the freelancer life. If it's due, on Monday, you don't get to take the weekend off. You're going to be writing it on Saturday and Sunday. Um, but as you say, it comes with freedom. You just have it's it's a juggling act to a certain degree. Yeah.
1: Well, the last thing this is so, somewhat related, but not not exactly that I, I was okay. going to ask you about earlier, but I just wanted to get it in um, and then I'll let you go. Um, was you wrote this story about Amy Bishop, who's the professor who was uh-huh. uh, who ended up killing a number of her colleagues uh, and in a shooting rampage, basically, for Wired Magazine, which I love that story. It's such a really, really fantastic story. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best Wired stories of ever. Okay, um, thank you. And
2: I know, but, where you, I know where you're headed. But one
1: thing that really interested me was <laughs> I that think. I interviewed Patrick Wright and Keefe, uh-huh. who subsequently wrote a story for The New Yorker uh-huh. about Amy Bishop. And you you were very gracious about it i felt like people asked you obviously about it or it came up and i think you sort of said like yeah it's a nice it was a great piece and here's my piece and i can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what you said mm-hmm. on twitter i meant to go back and look it up but
2: mm-hmm. I just, people tweeted like damn you know like you got robbed kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah kinda, exactly yeah.
1: and and I'm, what is your what is your like feeling about that sort of thing like what is your feeling of sort of ownership of a story like that or or...
2: I mean the one th- the just okay so the woman kills opens fire in a staff meeting, kills three people injures savagely injures I think three more um, and the murders happen and I went in while she was going to trial yeah. and I I was closer to the event than he was um, and so the big get that he got that I didn't get was talking to the parents
1: because it had been it yes. had been a long time so.
2: and and I think also, it probably didn't hurt that he was coming from the New Yorker, you know. I mean, I think there's a there are certain places that people. I don't know. I don't know whether this had a, an impact on them, but there are certain places that definitely where when you say you're coming from there, people are well. This this we're going to talk to anyone. It's going to be this place. Um, but either way, I tried to talk to them. They were not ready to talk, and I reached out. I had email addresses. I tried, and I didn't get them. And he did, and that was really interesting. I mean, you know none of these stories are ours; <laughs> they're somebody else's. You now we can do our great job if hopefully um explaining them um or you know delving into them um It's hard to watch one of your stories be told again <laughs> um but but um and and I definitely exchanged some emails with my editor at Wired <laughs> that day <laughs> when The New Yorker came out with their story um <laughs> But at the same time, you know, we'd had our moment with that story and we had the, our, the thing we were proudest of was that I got all of the copies of her novels that were unpublished. And so you got kind of a glimpse into her psyche to the extent we could deduce things from those novels because um, some of them were very violent and some of them were we talked about depression and. So so we'd had our our moment with the story, and then I, I don't think that that means that no one else can ever write about it again. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to watch sometimes. <laughs> it can be hard to
1: watch. Yeah, it's just interesting as a reader because, you know, you can sort of see, you can almost like see a way into the process a little bit uh-huh. because you can look at the first story and say, I can see why they put the story out then. You know, that was as much as you were going to get. and. Yes you could sit on it for a long time, but it was time to tell that story. And you could also see why someone sitting at The New Yorker said, well, now it's been longer, maybe we can get something else. And as a reader, you kind of want the two of you to get together and like (laughs) write something together. I would (laughs) welcome that. I
2: would. I mean, I've been the beneficiary of that same thing in a much different way. But there was a great, great spin story about D'Angelo, the soul singer, about his fall from grace. Oh, yeah. And... um, It was just a great piece of journalism, but that writer never got D'Angelo because D'Angelo was off the grid. He wasn't talking to anybody. So when I heard that um, D'Angelo was going on tour, this is now 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, after 13 years outside, you know, the, the next Marvin Gaye, the greatest soul singer ever had fallen off the side of the world for 13 years nobody people knew where he was but he wasn't seen in public and he didn't perform and when I heard he was going on tour in Europe to kind of warm up to get for his comeback I immediately emailed Jim Nelson at GQ who's a huge music fan and I said please send me please 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 send me you know and so I ended up going on tour with D'Angelo and um ended up getting the interview the and i heard from the the writer at spin oh really? afterwards and you know he was like i mean i'm sure it was really hard oh, for him sure. to, i mean he I'd, was saying of course it was hard did that for him story to well not just i did that story but i wanted that interview yeah. you know and and i totally understood i mean he didn't say that to me yeah, he was yeah. nothing but gracious he was totally gracious um but so you know it's, you're in the right place at the right time or you you get lucky or You know, and and in that moment, that was another D'Angelo story. Like, they're both good. They're just at different moments, you know. But I I heard from the guy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I totally, you know, I I was so appreciative that he was so, you know, he was so laudatory of the story. And I was like, your story was so great. It helped me so much because it did. I mean, I went to people that he had quoted in his story and interviewed them because I knew to interview them from his story. I mean, absolutely. It was like he had gone inside this moment which I wouldn't have known about as much if he hadn't done that. So I guess we're all building on each other's work to a certain degree. <laughs> yeah
1: and, and you're right ultimately uh, that's D'Angelo's story. It's actually not. Well, that's. Not, I mean, it's, it's not anyone's story it's except It's something his, I'm so. thinking
2: about a lot actually when I think about you know I've co-written a book now and will I write my own book but I'd like to do that. I think I would but what do I want to do it about and what I tend to write stories about often are I get people to tell me about their lives. And, but those are their stories. Those are not, that's not my, you know, so unless I'm going to write a memoir, (laughs) I'm going to be asking people to tell me their stories. And I'm thinking a lot about that. You know, that, that's, it's one thing if you write a big idea book, it's like my idea is X, and I'm going to go out and talk to 12 people Mm -hmm. about that. But, But the stories I tend to write, at least at the moment, are, more taking you inside somebody's world and so i'm i'm just i'm sort of pondering what that means for book writing mm-hmm. you know? um, well i want you to keep doing it for one so <laughs> well thank you don't change
1: thank you. um thanks so much for coming to new york to do this it wasn't why you came to New York? I flew, but I,
2: the minute you <laughs> asked me, I flew here. <laughs> but
1: thanks for coming in here, and uh, it's been really fun. So
2: thank you. Um, we'll have it. you back
1: again, maybe uh, after that book comes out, or That'd be great. maybe when your book comes out.
2: Ooh, the one I haven't decided on yeah, yet.
1: That's no problem. You, you don't need. You need another job. It I sounds like I
2: don't need an excuse to come in here. I'll <laughs> talk to you for another hour.
1: All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I was the host this week. I was talking to Amy Wallace, who was really gracious to come into the studio in New York and really fun to talk to. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. Our wonderful editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Gavin Jenkins. And our sponsors were Warby Parker and Tiny Letter, thanks to both of them. And check us out next week. We really appreciate your listenership